Rebecca Segovia is a graphic designer and the creator of the enormously popular Royalty Now Studios website, blog and social media accounts. Using an expert knowledge of Photoshop, Becca is able to bring figures from the past back to life through creating stunning, full-colour interpretations of some of history's most iconic figures, from Anne Boleyn to Edward IV, Julius Caesar to Pocahontas. Becca lifts the veil of time and allows us to get a glimpse of some of history's biggest names and how they may have truly looked. She joins me for a discussion today about her work, her process, what her work has taught her, and much, much more. Welcome back to the Tudor Chess Podcast, episode 19. Becca Segovia from Royalty Now, the studio bringing the past back to life. So welcome to the Tudor Chess Podcast, Becca Segovia, digital artist. You run the Royalty Now social media accounts, which I've been obsessed with since I first saw it a few years ago when I launched the Tudor Chest. You've obviously got a huge social media following and I'm sure a lot of people are going to be really excited to, to hear what you've got to say. But before we get into the main conversation about your work, could you just provide us with a, a short intro into your background, where you grew up and what it is that you do full time? Yeah, so my name is Becca Segovia. I'm the artist behind Royalty Now and also a full-time graphic designer. So I grew up actually in Iowa, which is in the middle of the United States for people that don't know, it's kind of a rural state. And then I now live in Dallas, Texas. I've got a husband and two dogs that I live with and um, lots of family around, so it's really fun. I started Royalty Now in 2018, where I kind of started modernizing historical figures. Now I kind of work on both, where I'll make a historical figure kind of in their own time, in their own clothing. But I also do the fun little like modern edits of what would Anne Boleyn look like today. And that's how the Instagram first began. And what sparked your passion for recreating historical figures? You know, how did you first sort of come to the attention of the Tudors? And and have you, I mean, have you always been interested in, in English history and world history? Yeah, always so interested in English history. I think that stems back. My dad read me, I don't know if you remember that book series. There's one called Doomed Queen Anne and there was one called Mary Bloody Mary and they were YA Tudor novels. And my dad read one to me, I think when I was probably 11 or 12. And I think that sparked mm. my interest in the Tudor specifically. And then when I was 15, I was lucky enough. We went to London as a family and I got to, we went to Hampton Court and obviously they have such a cool exhibit and kind of, lifestyle thing at Hampton Court with the kitchens and it's really immersive and so I think that's where the Tudor part of my love of history really started but like most kids that grew up in the 90s I was super into Titanic and ancient Egypt and Pompeii and all those kind of morbid um, areas of history but I've always just been a little history nerd yeah. If you could go back to and, and sort of be a bird's eye view of a single moment from history you could go back and witness it, what would it be? Yes. So I think since I'm so particularly interested in what they looked like, I would go back to maybe the wedding of Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn, or um, maybe when they met. I don't know. I think it'd just be really, really interesting to be a fly on the wall during some of those things. I'm totally with you as well as, because I'm I'm obsessed with knowing what people look like. It's one of the mm -hmm. reasons I think that is Anne Boleyn is endlessly fascinating is that we still don't know what she looked like. Do you have a controversial Tudor opinion? I do. I was thinking about this today. I'm not actually sure how controversial it is, but it's my opinion. So... <laughs> 
I think people forget how religious Henry VIII was. And I mentioned this in our YouTube video about Anne Boleyn, how, yeah, just how religion was part of his daily life as it was part of every single person in that time's daily life. And got so many comments that were like, oh, I roll, like Henry only cared about himself. He didn't care about God and all this stuff. But, you know, they had such a different view of religion at the time. I think Henry really believed in the order that the Catholic religion gave him, like he believed that he had been put on the throne by God and that the Mm. people below him were put there by God to serve him. You know, they believed everything was in the order that God had ordained, including women being inferior to men and all these different things. And so my controversial opinion is that Henry truly believed that his marriage to Catherine of Aragon was cursed in the eyes of God. Um, Like I think at the time when he married her, it was kind of like, how you only pray when you feel like your life is in danger or something where you're like, oh, it's probably fine. I know that Leviticus says if you marry your brother's wife, we'll be childless, but I'm sure it's okay. And then as over the years, um, you know, unfortunately, she suffered all of those miscarriages and stillbirths, really sad events. And I think over time, he became more and more convinced that God had truly cursed him. And so I think a lot of people think You know, this was just a really convenient excuse that he put together to get out of his marriage to Catherine and Mary Anne. But to me, I think he really believed it or at least had convinced himself by that point that Mm. it was that she had lied or that something was there that God hadn't blessed him. Because I was just thinking on the fact that the Tudor succession was not very secure. That's obviously why. Henry had to be so concerned about having a boy. It's not just because he wanted a son to play catch with, you know, it's because the Tudor line needed to be so secure. And so, um, yeah, I think he just, I think he really thought that he had made some mistake in the eyes of God and religion at the time. That's my opinion. What do you think about that? No, I I would agree. And I think that, I think we can't overstate how important religion was and how much it did define a lot of people's behavior and it's it's kind of you know we people often talk about the actions of, of mary queen mary the first and what she did you know in the name of religion and whilst yes burning people alive not ideal you know in her own way she genuinely believed that she was doing god's work and that protestants were a very real danger to her her nation so i we cannot underestimate religion and how important it was and i think one of the other things that people often get quite wrong about Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn actually is that there's this theory that they became Protestants and they just they did not you yeah, know they became Henry like VIII. a hybrid they became Catholics who well Anne Boleyn more so than Henry I think but you know they they were Catholics who were open to the idea of change but Henry VIII died very much a Catholic and Anne Boleyn died a Catholic as well just one open to the idea of of some religious reform is there a Tudor misconception that you would love to change yeah I think there's been more discourse on it in recent years but I think everyone recently has been talking about Anne of Cleves not actually being ugly just being ugly because of the events around or being considered ugly because of the events around her arrival at the Tudor court and that's when and also when you hear people who are only casually acquainted with the Tudors will always Mm. say things like, well, wasn't Anne Boleyn a witch or didn't she have a sixth finger or a mole? And then Anne of Cleves was ugly. Those are like the things they know. The Flanders mare. (laughs) The Flanders mare. Yes, exactly. And so I think a lot of what actually made Anne unattractive, not necessarily physically ugly, but unattractive to Henry 
was the fact that he was used to he was used to English brides, which was actually super rare because he yeah. you know should have probably been forging alliances with other countries. But you know, he had Anne Boleyn, who was French educated. She was so witty and worldly. And then you have Anne of Cleves, who's coming over and she doesn't really speak English. She didn't understand that, you know, game Henry tried to play with her yeah. when they met. He was cats. And she's freaked out. She's like, who's this man? Um, and I think just that lack of like sharing a sense of humor and sharing a sense of Englishness was probably just a little bit of an, an ick for him, I guess, for lack of a better word. Yeah. I And I think he was a man who was by this time as well, you know, so, you know, if there was anyone that was ugly in the room, it wasn't Anna of Cleves, it was him. He was grossly overweight by this point. He was, you know, he'd suffered years of disappointment in many respects. Yeah. And I think that ultimately it injured his pride when she didn't recognize him. And, and it, you know, it dawned on him that he was not by any means the most eligible catch in Europe. And I think that's really the, the crux of it. I believe she was quite tall and broad and, you know, Anne Boleyn was famously very petite. I think Jane Seymour was quite small. Catherine of Aragon was supposedly very short, whereas Anna of Cleves, I think, was supposedly quite tall and broad. And I think the fact that she didn't speak English, the clothing that she was wearing on their first meeting was very Germanic. So I think, yeah, there were just things that immediately turned him off. And I think, it, but I think it was the non-Englishness of her and the fact that she did not immediately, you know, recognize him and drop, and drop to her knees and show deference. I think that was, yeah, that was the big part. I think he really. was ultimately a man who was extremely anxious about his appearance, obviously his masculinity, um, yeah. virility and things Literally. like that. So any insult, it would be the classic, oh, well, I didn't want you anyway, kind of situation. Totally, totally. Yeah. So onto the sort of the main part of the discussion about your work with royalty now. I believe your very first digital recreation was of Anne Boleyn. I do know that it's not seen the light of day, I believe, because you yourself have said <laughs> that it's uh, when you look on, back on it to now, you're not as happy with it as you would like to be. Hidden away. <laughs> <laughs> so what drew you to Anne Boleyn? You know, why did she become your first digital recreation? As I told you, the first trip to London, that that trip to Hampton Court, I, as a more an adult, I've been more interested in Catherine of Aragon. I think she's a more interesting, or maybe not a more interesting, but everyone loves Anne Boleyn because of the sexy story attached to Anne Boleyn. And I mm. think I've always been drawn to that just um, as everyone else has. But I, I guess I've found new respect for Catherine of Aragon is what I'm trying oh, to say. Oh, hugely. I've, yeah. like, how, I've like found equal um, interest in her as, as with Anne Boleyn, but obviously I'm obsessed with Anne Boleyn. Um, it really annoys me though when people... Sort of, there's this theory that you can't like them both equally, you right. know? It's so ridiculous. You know, there yeah. shouldn't be this Catherine versus Anne. There was something I put up a few weeks ago on my Instagram account, and I, I think I said something along the lines of that I think on balance that Catherine Howard had the saddest story. And someone yeah. said, oh, you know, um, so what about Catherine of Aragon? I bet you just don't respect her. I said, I have nothing but respect for Catherine of Aragon. She was incredible. Nothing but respect for Catherine. Nothing but respect. No, she totally, was an amazing I lady. for all of them. I don't, I don't know why you would, they were all at the mercy of Henry. Yeah, you know? massively. Yeah. Yes. So always been so interested in Anne Boleyn. I think she is just a really fascinating character, as you mentioned, because we don't really know what she looked like. Mm. So I've always found those portraits of her to be really at odds with what we know about her in life, kind of feisty, vivacious, witty person. And then you're looking at these, especially like the National Portrait Gallery image, which is pretty austere. It's really lacks a lot of depth. 
kind of flat looking. So when I was kind of flirting with the idea of starting doing some recreations, I'd always really loved people that had done the colorized statues or people that had done the forensic reconstructions of faces that was really interested in me because they showed humanity in history, which I think a lot of people forget um, when you're in like a boring history class. That's the last thing you're thinking about is the fact that these were real people who were making real decisions in real time and had feelings and emotions and everything like that. So I really wanted to start making some recreations. I've always been into Photoshop. Um, as I mentioned, I'm a graphic designer full time. So always used Photoshop for many years and wanted to try using it to make the recreations. So I first started with Anne Boleyn. Um, I basically took the National Portrait Gallery, added some modern day hair, and I had seen someone else do this. I thought it was like fun. It was like a fun spin on it, putting modern day hair and makeup on it. So I wanted to try it for myself. And I, it, it is, as you mentioned, archived away. Um, <laughs> it's my first attempt. You know, if you're not embarrassed about your old work, then you haven't gotten better. So you haven't um, progressed. Yeah, I completely agree. So I believe yeah. your your account exploded it exploded overnight as far as going from a few hundred followers to now hundreds of thousands of followers. Was there a particular recreation that caused this big jump? And if so, can you just tell us about that process? Yeah. So it was my recreation of Julius Caesar. He's wearing a business suit, which I think really intrigued people. People just found that funny. Um, there were a lot, of, I think it became so viral because there were a lot of memes created about it. Like, oh, Julius Caesar looks like the CEO that would yell at me or, you know, all those sorts of things. But as I mentioned, I started doing the modern day versions just because I felt like they gave them a little more humanity, you know, kind of like, oh, you could see this person at the grocery store. Or they could be a celebrity at an award show. Mm. To me, that was just really, it made them feel really familiar to me. And so that's why I started doing them in the modern day in the first place. So that's why Julius is in the modern day. And I, in hindsight, I used the wrong statue. It's not a very accurate statue of Julius Caesar that I used. But um, yeah, I think I just somehow was able to make it look really lifelike. And even I sat back and I was like, whoa, that looks pretty good. Like, like. <laughs> Maybe I should post it on the internet or something. It just looked better than I thought it would. Um, and so that I think that Julius Caesar one is the one that I maybe posted first, or maybe it was the Anne Boleyn one. So it started making the rounds on some like the Daily Mail and all those all those things. I think that's where I first saw it. Actually, I think I see. Yeah. I seem to recall reading an article on the Mail Online of your work and being just uh, because I think like you, I am someone who really wants to know exactly what they look like, you know. And yeah. and I think that it's it's quite difficult for us to look at portraits of people from five hundred years ago. You know, the clothing they're wearing is so alien to what we wear now. In particular, with the women, you're not seeing the the truth of it because their hair is mostly covered and things like that. And that's why I remember one of your very early pieces of work was. A, Queen Mary the first, based on the Antonis Moore portrait, which actually I think is one of the greatest Tudor portraits, because I firmly yes. believe we are seeing exactly what Mary looked like in that portrait. Hundred percent, yeah. That portrait, there is something about it which is truthful. It's it's, it's very the best portrait I've ever seen. I have no doubt that is exactly what she looked like. It also clearly doesn't have the Tudor face tuning that you saw with Elizabeth the first portraits, Henry the Eighth's portraits. That yeah. propaganda aspect doesn't appear in Mary's portrait somehow, and yet ironically makes them feel more realistic. You know? Absolutely, because you're looking at an Anne Boleyn that has not a line on her face, not, you know, the lips are so tiny, her jaw is almost, it's like I look yeah. at that jaw and it's so narrow, it doesn't look anatomically correct. And yeah. I think 
Yeah, to really answer your question, I think I wanted to see Anne Boleyn with her hair down. You know, I wanted to see her <laughs> without a hair without a headdress on. I think that's yeah. just one of the reasons that you're looking at these and they don't feel real. They don't feel modern in any way. So yeah, that was a big catalyst. So walk us through your process. How do you select? Because you know you've you've also now branched out into doing figures from American history, Asian history, African history. What is your process? How do you select the person you're going to be working on? And from there, sort of how do you go about recreating them? So I wish I could say that the process behind picking the next person was more scientific, but it's mostly, so as I mentioned, my husband works on the YouTube with me. So it's mostly us sitting down and just kind of talking about who we're interested in doing next, who we think people will be interested in learning about. And we kind of try to skip between, you know, we don't do too much English history. We'll skip to an American figure or we need to do more Asian figures, but the portraits are really hard to work from. So that's kind of the reason we don't have too many. So we'll kind of skip around in terms of that. And then once we do decide on who we want to work on, so Jordan goes ahead and writes the script and begins that work. And then I start on the portrait. So I obviously look at portraiture first. Most importantly, it's which images, if we have any that are contemporary which are not. And then I look into contemporary descriptions of the figure to make sure they're aligning with those portraits. So, you know, just making sure that the things people were saying are also lining up. So looking looking into contemporary descriptions of the figure to make sure they're aligning with what the portraits are showing or saying anything that the portraits don't quite capture. So I, obviously the kind of tier list of sources that I would work from were death masks are obviously like a treasure trove for me. I love a death mask because of how (laughs) by virtue it's, you know, the most accurate thing you can see, even though you have to take into account then was the figure old, were they sick, were they beheaded? Like we have Marie Antoinette's death mask, but it's from a beheaded head, which is really morbid, but that could change the looks. Yeah. uh, Well, um, you know, Madame Tussauds was given, I, I could be wrong, but I'm fairly certain Madame Tussauds had access to the actual heads of Marie Antoinette yeah. and Louis the Sixteenth and stuff, and and she built her waxworks of, of them off their actual heads. I think I could be wrong, but yes. I think that's no, true. It, it was Madame Tussaud that took the death mask of her, essentially. Yeah, and that's like what started the fascination with kind of the real faces of historical figures because yeah, they, I believe she put together an exhibition of people that had been executed during the French Revolution, like uh, Robespierre and others. And it kind of started her whole career with that. So most coveted are the death masks in terms of accuracy. And then contemporary portraits, of course, are the next year. Then copies of contemporary portraits like we might have with Anne Boleyn. And then, as you mentioned, we'll talk about later, some artistic depictions or just descriptions, even just even a light description of the figure is helpful sometimes. So that's kind of the order I go in in terms of my research. And then I also make sure my historical clothing is on point. So when I do the ones in their own time, I obviously want to make sure that I'm done my research on that because AI tools are not historians. So you have to know what you're looking for to make sure that it looks right and stuff like that. So those are kind of my my first steps to making the recreations. So one of my favorite, I think probably my favorite of your your digital recreations is of Anne Boleyn, uh, not based on the National Portrait Gallery image. It's the one that you recreated a, a year or so ago, I believe, which is based on one of the two sketches that are by Hans Holbein that might be Anne Boleyn. It's the one that's taken from the British Museum with Anne wearing a gable hood. Based on your own research and sort of looking into 
the portraiture of Anne Boleyn and the sketches of Anne Boleyn. What is your opinion on this piece of art? You know, it, to me, and we've kind of touched on this already a little bit, but it does feel, even though it's only a sketch, it feels more realistic. It looks like a human being. <laughs> Whereas yes. the National Portrait Gallery and particularly the Heva Rose portraits, to me, don't look like a real human. The mouths are too small. The features are too intense. The, this, whereas that Holbein sketch, and which is why I loved your recreation, is I think we are looking at Anne Boleyn with that. Whereas I don't see that with the the more famous, well-known portraits. I feel the same. Holbein was had some magic with those sketches. I can't explain it, but I do not know how he made sketches look more lifelike than fully fleshed out portraits of certain people. Like, it's just incredible. I love looking at them. I feel like I'm truly looking into the eyes of whoever he was sketching at the Tudor court. And I've always loved that one, the one it's disputed, but the one we're talking about of Anne Boleyn wearing this gable hood. I think it was inscribed maybe in the 17th century, if I'm correct, with the fact that it was Anne Boleyn. The only thing I find kind of off about that one is when you can see through her eyes, that they look kind of blue or at least clear. And that's the only thing that throws me off about that one, because we obviously know that Anne Boleyn was famous for having dark eyes. So that's the only thing that throws me off on that one. But I just loved it. I love how realistic it looks, whoever it is. It was difficult to bring to life just because when you're looking at the sketch, it's obviously a really light, you know, you have to do a lot of brightness and contrast work in Photoshop to really bring out the the strokes in it. And it was it was just really hard, especially around her lips, to get the correct border of the lips in the recreation to kind of get that shape of them really, really well. So it was a little difficult to work from. But I love this one. I do think it could be a true likeness of Anne Boleyn. And I actually don't think that it looks all that different from the other Holbein sketch with the chin. The features look quite similar when you when you kind of put them side by side. I always look for a proportion match on things. I think that's how I, when I'm looking to see if this person looks like this person or if this death mask matches up with this portrait, I always kind of draw the lines in Photoshop, like one line under their nose, one line over their eyebrows to match the proportions between them. And those matched really well. I totally agree with you that NPG and Heaver Rose look really unrealistic. I've Hmm. always been, you know, I was just reading your article that you have on your website about the real Amblin, because I was just kind of reviewing the all the portraits. There's so many. Um, there's so, yeah, there's so many. Yeah, and... there's so many, and there's so many of that same copy, that pattern of the National Portrait Gallery one with the bee necklace and everything. There's so many copies, but weirdly, also not a single one looks exactly like the other. No. <laughs> you know, and then not that's when sing- you're just like, well, then how can we even like say any yeah. one of these right if they're all copies? Yeah. So yeah, it's just, and then we have the the portrait medal, but that of course looks like a tiny coin you know it's like so elusive yeah to find her i know i know I, I mean don't get me wrong i think the work that lucy churchill did when she recreated it is is amazing but she always whenever i talk about amblin portraiture she always you know she's very quick to say but we've got the medal and i'm like yeah we've got the medal but the medal one is busted and yes you've recreated it beautifully i'm not disputing that but it's a coin we're not it's, it's not still a small coin we're not getting the same level of detail as a portrait is able to provide. And, and and I think one of the other things that about that coin is that it does bear up massively with the Nidhall portrait of Anne Boleyn. There's a real correlation yeah. there. I'm interested um, in the Nidhall portrait for some reason. I yeah. just get a feeling about it. 
And you know what's interesting about that one too is that she's wearing the consort's necklace in that Nidhal portrait, the one that we can see that we know belong to the Royal Treasury of Jewels, mm-hmm. um, which she's not wearing in any of the other ones. I just find that interesting. And also I'm a little suspicious that Amberlynn's nose was probably a lot bigger than we think it was based on the na- like the National Portrait Gallery image has a pretty small petite nose on her. But then if you're looking at the metal or even if it's that Holbein sketch that she's got a pretty yeah. strong nose there, the Nidhal yeah, nose. As Elizabeth did, you know, Elizabeth had notoriously had quite a, a what we call a Roman nose, you know, a hooked nose. So I yeah. think I agree with you. I think that Anne Boleyn did not, ha- I think she probably did have quite a, a prominent nose. And I think you see that in some of the, I think you see that in the Holbein sketches for sure. The Nidhal one is is a toughie because it does look so much older than and i'm i'm team 1507 as well so i i struggle with that portrait it, ugh, who knows some people think it might be jane seymour i mean what i believe i seem to recall reading somewhere that the h and a pendant was a later edition i could be making that up but i'm fairly certain i remember reading that somewhere that the ha pendant that hangs from the the chest which is part of the evidence that points to it being Amberlin, actually right. was a added at a later date but i could be wrong such a mystery man it's, yeah, it's such a mystery like but holbein portrait has some pros and some cons There's exactly nothing. but to your point a moment i mean holbein was a an absolute genius i mean he really was at this exhibition that was that was going on one of the things I was most impressed by was a portrait of Sir Henry Guilford and his wife. And you only see it when they're alongside each other, but you realise that they are a pair of portraits because a curtain rail runs along the top of each portrait, which only when put side by side comes together perfectly, as does vines and flowers and everything. I'd seen both portraits in isolation. And then when you see them side by side, you're like, oh, he, you know, they clearly make a joined picture. So he was just, he was a genius, absolute genius. I know you're a fan of Wolf Hall, right? Because you posted recently oh, love about it. Yes. being made. I'm just now, well, I've, I watched it before, but I'm re-watching it and was actually just watching the one last night where they framed that portrait of Thomas Cromwell perfectly. You know, the Holbein portrait of Thomas Cromwell. Yes. And he's, um, you know, the actor is sitting there in the exact outfit um, in the exact with the green wall behind him. And I yeah. just thought that was such a cool callback. And I think actually Holbein is painting him in that um, scene. But then yes. the way they found that book too, that was, yeah, he amazing, painted it so it? faithfully that that's exactly what the book looks like. You know, like, I know. So I know. I went to see the book a few weeks ago, actually. I saw it because it's on display at Hever Castle. So I was, I was able to see it in the flesh, which was, which was lovely. So you've, you sort of touched on this earlier. You've produced digital creations based on, figures for whom we have sadly no detailed portraits i'm thinking you know of your recreation of eleanor of aquitaine for example very recently you did one of the princes in the tower with and an, with the princes in the tower obviously this was very much sort of your own creation eleanor of aquitaine based on there's yeah. an effigy for eleanor of aquitaine so when you're working from these just really scant records how does the process change as such yeah, so I am really clear every time I do one of these that they're quite artistic, you know, and even when I'm making the ones with actual statues or paintings as, as references, I'm always clear. I'm never trying to make the definitive likeness of a certain historical figure. You know, this is it's all like a thought experiment to make history come to life. And so that's exactly mm. what I want to do with Eleanor Rakuten, Joan of Arc, Boudicca. Yeah, Sons. although it's yeah. weird, though, with your, like, you know, I saw your Joan of Arc when I saw your one of Eleanor of Aquitaine, and they do feel 
I'm like, yeah, I can see that being how they did look. There's a quality to it. Yeah. And so I think one of the things I've tried to focus on now is even if we don't know exactly what they looked like, I can at least give you an image of this would be Joan of Arc. This was the type of hairstyle she would have worn. This is the type of armor she would have worn. You know, give you like a portrait and an impression of perhaps what a French girl from that time would have looked like. And so I obviously just try to find as many written descriptions as I can with certain figures. It's even we have hardly anything. I think for the princes in the tower, there was not a single written description of what they looked like. There was one manuscript illustration that showed that Edward was a blonde boy. And that is about all the information we have. So the one of the princes in the tower was completely artistic. We showed it in a video alongside the recreations of Edward IV and Elizabeth Woodville, which were much more based on fact and actual portraiture. But I just wanted to I want to honor certain historical figures and their stories, even if we don't have a portrait for them. So I'm really just trying to give an impression of what they could have looked like in their time to make them come to life a little more. I loved your recreations of Edward IV and Elizabeth Woodville. I mean, I, I've i said this before, I've just got a massive soft spot for Edward IV. <laughs> Funnily enough, I had a someone I know who came on the podcast a few weeks ago. And he said how much of that is influenced by Max Lyons in uh, in the White so Queen. Much, 100%. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yeah, you're not wrong. Great <laughs> but, cast. Um, great cast. Great, great cast. But um, I mean, what a beautiful couple. If you know, if let's say yeah. the portraits are accurate and then your creations are accurate, recreations are accurate, stunning couple. I mean, really beautiful, you know, beautiful couple. Yeah, and especially I really wanted to do Edward the Fourth because it was remarked upon how just how good looking he was mm-hmm. in his youth and how tall and strong and you know in the time when english kings were fighting for the crown literally on the battlefield so being tall and broad-shouldered and strong was so sexy for the time and i never found the portraits of edward the 4th very appealing a they look no they, they he doesn't look handsome in his portraits he doesn't no. he looks all no, big they and- look- yeah, <laughs> he looks a bit puffy. And, you know, then you read kind of those accounts of how he aged very quickly, you know, like he was a hard partier. He had a hard life. He was fighting on the battlefield and doing other things. So he just aged really, really fast. And so I think just I did one that's faithful to the when he's in his mid 30s in that portrait. And then I did another one that just kind of ages him down a little bit to give you more of an impression of what he would look like younger. And I think so yeah, I was always I was really interested in making a portrait of Edward the Fourth for that reason, and then yeah, Elizabeth Woodville too because she was legendarily beautiful. I mean, everyone talked about her. He stopped. Well, I mean, according to legend, stopped on the side of the road to to speak to her, and then they got married soon after. So it's a really romantic yeah. story, and I loved doing the recreations. Yeah, it's a really romantic story, and I, you also produced one around the same time of Richard the Third as well you haven't done to my knowledge of George Duke of Clarence yet so the middle no, brother will we see uh, one in the future do you think maybe we don't have a great portrait for him do you know the it's one it's not great is- I know the one you mean I know the one you mean yeah, it's he's, he's where he's got like, like a wavy, wavy gray hair, hair like and a chainmail turtleneck on is what it looks like to me it's not the best but yeah he could possibly be in the queue for sure I really liked working on the the Richard the third one because of that kind of archaeological side of it as well and mm. how they did the facial reconstruction of him, as you know. And people always argue about how accurate facial reconstructions are. And 
it's it's so hard to tell because they don't capture the soft tissue features of the face. So the one, the facial reconstruction made in the modern day versus the portraits of him made at the time, well, I guess about 20 years after his death, I don't think we have a contemporary image for him, but they do, there are some differences between them. So with my recreation, I tried to kind of thread the needle between them, make it look kind of grabbing pieces from each one. So that was a fun one to just kind of explore and work on. I thought that the 3D recreation after his bones were discovered was really compelling. I, I thought there was yeah. a lot of, I saw a lot in the, of that in the portraits. I mean, it's, it's like everything, isn't it? You're, with a portrait, you're seeing a snapshot, you're not seeing movement or anything. Someone else that I don't believe you've done that would, I'd love to see is a Margaret Pohl, because we do have a portrait I firmly believe is her. And I'm sure you know the portrait I'm referring to, but there's a really big clue with that portrait that it is definitely her, which is that it's a small detail, but it's there. And it's, it definitely is compelling, which is that she's wearing a bracelet and hanging from the bracelet is a small pendant of a wine barrel. And it was her oh. father who was famously drowned in a barrel of Malmsey wine as his method of execution. And that's Absolutely. why... Yeah, so that's why there is this belief that that portrait is her. Because also there weren't that many elderly women of very noble birth still alive. And Mm. this portrait is undoubtedly a woman of advanced years, very, very wealthy. You can tell that by the clothing. And then that barrel hanging from her wrist, I believe it's her. If you're looking at it, it's her left wrist. Yeah, it's a small detail. But once you see it, you're like, oh, well, there we go. That that makes sense. (laughs) That's crazy. Big if true, for real. So of the Plantagenet and the Tudor recreations you've done, which has provided you with the biggest issues? You know, which was the character that you just really struggled to create convincingly? Yes. So I have a really old one of Jane Seymour that I did that, I mean, don't look at it. I'll, I'll make a new one soon. But for some reason, I just could not get the eyes right on some of those. They're the three quarter view ones. Um, it's mm-hmm. really, really hard to get the eye that's away from the viewer correct for some reason. And actually, you'll notice throughout history that a lot of artists struggle with that, too. Eyes are just really difficult. And Elizabeth Woodville was also really challenging. And the, the picture we have of Elizabeth Woodville is probably a copy of a lost original. But as you can see, looking at those old medieval portraits that you can tell they lack a little bit of skill. You know, the portrait of Elizabeth Woodville, Richard III, some of those, you can just tell that the artist wasn't that good. We hadn't entered the the Renaissance period of art yet, right? Mm. And so um, I've always found Elizabeth Woodville's face to look really cartoony in that portrait. Her nose like literally looks, it's just like an outline of a nose. There's no shading, nothing really artistic going on. It's just the outline of a nose. So it's really hard to recreate those because... I'm trying to be faithful to that image so that when you're looking at them side by side, you see, oh, yeah, it's an exact recreation of this painting. But then I'm also trying to make it look like a real human. And I think there was just something about that one that looked really odd. I had to kind of make adjustments or um, change things a little bit to look more realistic. And then especially Elizabeth Woodville's costuming that she's wearing. She's wearing Mm -hmm. that Henan headdress, which is the big veil type of thing and they would secure them with wire and it looks really goofy it's actually barely visible in that portrait which is interesting it's um, yeah you can just about see the outline of it and i you can you can picture what it is but it's it's very peculiar and because there aren't you know we don't have portraits of margaret of anjou we don't have portraits of jaquetta of luxembourg we don't have portraits of anne neville really of the women of her generation it is only elizabeth woodville that we can really go off it was that classic 
medieval headdress that was starting to go out of style yeah. kind of right in that Hairline time. plucked as well. Hairline plucked. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah. And so that one was just difficult. It was, I basically, I think ended up just Photoshopping a bunch of little pieces of things together for that recreation. So it was really challenging. I made the veil with a vector image of a veil that I like shaped around her head in Photoshop and used. So it's like maybe not my most recreate or realistic recreation, but it was a big challenge. Um, I do think it captured realistically what that person could have looked like. And I found the same with Lady Jane Grey, the portrait that we have. I know we don't necessarily have a confirmed contemporary image of her, but the Streatham, I think it's Streatham or Streatham portrait. Streatham. It's not, it's actually, <laughs> Streatham is a part of South London. It's not far from where I live. Oh, um, nice. Okay. That yeah, was, I knew there was going to be an English pronunciation that I didn't yeah, get there. Yeah, Streatham. Um, yeah, we always joke if you're posh, you call it St. Reatham. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Streatham. St. Reatham portrait. That's what I'll yeah, say. Yeah, exactly. I'm the Streatham portrait. Well, the Streatham portrait of what may very well may be Jane Grey is viewed as a really terrible mm-hmm. piece of art. I mean, I'm not, I don't, I looked at it and thought, why do people hate this? It's, it looks like an all right portrait to me, but art historians say that it's terrible. Yeah, they say it's they they say it's crap. So I did a Lady Jane Grey from that one, and that was difficult just because, you know, when you're working from a bad portrait, you're trying to figure out, you're trying to figure out in which ways is it bad. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. How did, they, did they paint the features wrong? Did they paint them correctly but just flat? Like it's just it's just really hard to kind of figure out and work out. So with those, it's really hard to get to find the middle ground between making it look faithful to the portrait and making it look like a realistic human. One of your most recent recreations is one of, I think one of the most fascinating images from Tudor England. It's an X-rayed image. It's an X-ray of of the portrait of Elizabeth I, which beneath clearly features a different woman at one point wearing what is very obviously a French hood what looks to be a bit of a hooked nose and and the the overall structure and the look led many myself included to think this is Anne Boleyn that it's a portrait of Anne Boleyn hidden beneath a portrait of her daughter you have concluded that you don't think it's Anne Boleyn so can you just tell us about this particular image why you think it isn't Anne Boleyn and what your own findings were yeah, absolutely. So this is this has been always one of my favorite kind of Tudor portrait mysteries that I've seen throughout the years. This image was found about 15 years ago from the National Portrait Gallery's Making Art in Tudor Britain project. They kind of started restoring a bunch of old um, Tudor portraits and x-raying them, doing radiography on them. And so they found a bunch of different in- interesting things under a couple of different Tudor portraits. And the most interesting one to me and to a lot of people was, yeah, this image of what appears to be a dark haired, dark eyed woman um, underneath this portrait of Elizabeth. And so, of course, I think the brain jumps to, oh, it's got to be a portrait of her mother, Anne Boleyn, which I I, lo- I mean, I love that theory. I'm never going to say I don't love that theory. But I thought it'd be really fun to try to recreate the face of the woman underneath and then kind of compare it to women who are at court, compare it to Anne Boleyn, kind of just do a little investigation of who I thought it could be. So it's just kind of a fun little pet project that I did over the last couple of weeks and then posted a video about it. So the reasons that it's probably not is that the wood paneling was dated to 15, I think it was between 1575 and 1585. So not contemporary to the time of Anne Boleyn. 
granted, I think some people are like, oh, well, it could have been a non-contemporary portrait copy of Anne Boleyn. But there are some issues with that as well, because we do see, see she's wearing the French hood, but it appears to be the slightly squarer version of the French hood that was worn uh, like 20 to 30 years after Anne's death, rather than the fully kind of circular ones that Anne would wear. And then, you know, it's really hard to see. Some historians think they can see a ruff around her neck in it, and not just not just one of the collars that you could see on a Tudor gown, but the actual ruffs that were kind of coming into fashion as Elizabeth was going more into her reign. So it kind of dates the fashion of the woman underneath to be a little too late to be Anne. I asked Dr. Owen Emerson about this, and he told me that there would be no conceivable reason why they would paint Anne in 1580s clothing. Um, Because I was like, you know, what if it, what if they just made a copy of Anne Boleyn? And he was like, it's possible that they could paint a copy of Anne Boleyn, but she would never have been wearing that. They wouldn't have put her in fashion from 40 years later. So that to me kind of just eliminates her right off the face of it. Also, the fact that when you think about it, I think it's a really romantic notion that Elizabeth would want to kind of protect an image of her mother, but she also had no notion of an x-ray being taken in the future or any sort of way that you would even be able to see this image underneath. So I don't know that she would have made a choice to, I guess, cover a portrait of her mother to protect it. That doesn't quite make sense to me. Um, It's also the question of, did, did Elizabeth even know that this panel was being reused? Was this just the artist had an old panel from someone that didn't pay for their portrait or the portrait sitter sadly died or something like that, and then just decided to reuse it without the queen's knowledge. So that's definitely a possibility. But what I wanted to do was recreate the woman underneath, which I think I could have done a better job on her nose. I think it could have been more hooked in my recreation, but I'll just have to post an amendment. People yeah. need to cut me some slack because oh, first of all, I'm, wor- <laughs> I'm working from the queen. No, you're working off something that's barely an image. <laughs> Yes, you know, like, I'm just saying people because we, I got a lot of YouTube comments that were like, the, oh, like the haters, but you're yeah. working off, you're working off what is effectively 40%. You're working off what is 40% of a hidden face under a portrait. You, you, you haven't got a lot to go off there. It was a toughie. So I could have done the nose a little better, I think, looking at them side by side. But what was really interesting was my recreation ended up looking a lot like the contested portrait of Catherine Howard. And I've asked Gareth Russell about this before, and he is like convinced that that is Catherine Howard. He fully believes that that Met Gallery portrait of a lady is Catherine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm much more convinced. I am much more convinced by that than I am the the more well-known miniature that some people are now saying could be Anne of Cleves. Yeah, the one in the Met, I'm I'm much more convinced by, for sure. Yes. And I found it really interesting that the recreation of this woman looked a lot like that version, but that Mm. I think equally doesn't make sense because again, why would there be a non-contemporary copy of Catherine Howard wearing that style of clothing? It doesn't quite make sense, but yeah, it's just like a really interesting little detective experiment of my own. So do you have any theories besides Anne Boleyn? Yes. Until you, I watched your video and until you'd mentioned that, the possible rough, I'd never spotted that. Still not. I don't convinced. know that I would have spotted it on my own. I only spotted it because I was doing the research on it. Like well, I'm not even, and I'm not convinced that it is a rough. I think it's possible yeah. that it's just excess paint from 
where it was painted over. I, I don't know. It, it, Extremely hard to see. It's very hard to see. And even if the by the time roughs were being worn, the French hood, even the slightly squared version, was not being worn at the same time as roughs. So yeah. that you weren't really doing headdresses the same way they used to. No, yeah. they became more like sort of like almost diadems or, or sort of tiaras yeah. by the time it got to Elizabeth. Certainly at the later years of Elizabeth's reign. I still have a theory that it's Anne. I don't know. There's just something about the profile and the yeah. shape of the face. And it just looks like Anne Boleyn to me. But yeah, it knows? does. Who knows? That's when you, if you just look at it on face value, it looks like Anne Boleyn. It but, does. but who knows? Who knows? On the subject of, of portraits and everything, you know, there are always new discoveries being found. We talked about the, you know, the Book of Hours of Thomas Cromwell's. A ring was recently discovered, um, which is now on display at Hampton Court Palace, which probably belonged to Thomas Boleyn, or it might have been George Boleyn. We're very lucky when occasionally portraits do crop up. With that in mind, you know, is there a discovery that you would love to see in the next couple of years? You know, I think I'm more interested in archaeological discoveries. I think, like we talked about earlier with the bones of the princes in the tower, supposed bones, I think some of the research that was done with Richard III was so fascinating. Taking what we know about the man from history, what's come down to us, um, and then comparing it to the actual physical man, I think was just so interesting and we never get the opportunity to do that. And so I, I would really love to see DNA testing on obviously the bones and the princes in the tower. I would love to see DNA testing on the bones that are believed to be Anne Boleyn's bones. I know that there's a lot of objections to that because of religion and certain things like that. I don't know. It's just personal belief that I think enough time has passed that we could gain a ton of really, really valuable and interesting knowledge about history from those things. And so I personally would love to see more archaeological DNA kind of things done. What about you? Funnily enough, I actually spoke to... um... Alf Hawkins is one of the curators of the Tower of London. And I said, look, what do we have to do to get Anne's remains up and you know, allow yeah. us to do a, a, a reconstruction of the skull and everything? And he said, it's never going to happen unless it will only happen if they are forced to have to dig up the remains due to a, you know, if, if there was something that happened to the Chapel of St. Peter and it was necessary for them to unearth bones. But pure curiosity is never enough of a reason sadly which is is one of those why things why would it never happen just religious objections religious objections it goes against their codes of conduct and it's not it would be purely for the sake of curiosity rather than you know with richard the third it was just he was missing and they found his remains so and that was a very good yeah exactly although the moment what i thought was so fascinating about that discovery was how overt he did have a curvature of the spine which was just such a it was fascinating to watch philippa langley who had been adamant that was a bit of tudor propaganda and then when it was so obvious it was fascinating because you went okay propaganda is one thing but there was clearly a lot of truth in what the tudors were also saying about him which is is really interesting on the subject of philippa langley she believes that she (laughs) Uh, in what is becoming her habit, she believes that she has found another king in a car park, which uh, she's working on at the moment. She believes that she has found the remains of Henry I under a car park in Reading to the west of London, and that's her next big project. So maybe... Well, I feel like the woman can find any yeah. king at this point, so I'm exactly. ready. <laughs> exactly. And that will be really fascinating because he is obviously, you know, we talked about the crude nature of Elizabeth Woodville's portraits, I mean, her her portrait is a 
a masterpiece when we compare the the shocking <laughs> sketches of the early Plantagenets, the the Henry the Firsts, and the you know King John, and so we have no idea what they really look like no. at all. No idea. I mean, at least with Elizabeth Woodville's portrait, yes, it's a bit rudimentary, but it's a it's a human. Whereas it's a human. those, yeah. it's a human face. <laughs> Whereas those sketches, I mean, what happened there? What happened between sort of eleven hundred and fourteen hundred? where the artists just got a bit better because those... no I think about this a lot I think and yeah. also with like the way they painted babies and dogs and cats and stuff I'm like you could see them though like you could see them with your own eyes you could see what a person looked like yeah. does the what you've done look like a human person or a human baby <laughs> no yeah, it doesn't and, and... Yeah, and what's so frustrating is that you compare it against artifacts from the time. There's an incredible glass and gold vase that belonged to Eleanor of Aquitaine. And it is, we're talking about something that's nearly a thousand years old. It is so beautiful. It is so detailed. The craftsmanship is unbelievable. And you think, well, if you're able to produce that, why on earth are the not even portraits, the dodgy sketches that look like they've been done by a three-year-old. What? Why have we only got those? So yeah, if Philippa Langley does dig up Henry I, at least we'll be able to see what an early Plantagenet actually looked like. If you're happy to say, what are the upcoming recreations that you're working on at the moment? Have you, what have you got in the pipeline? Yeah, so I don't have anything currently in the pipeline. I'm taking a couple of weeks off for Christmas, but yep. hopefully in the new year, we're going to start on... So I want to do a Jane Seymour and an Edward the Sixth. I've never done an Edward the Sixth because I'd never really done a young um, child or teen before. So I want to do that one. I obviously want to do a new one of Henry the Eighth soon. I I definitely think one of Mary the First is in order, like we just talked about with her portrait. I think we may already know what she looked like based on how realistic that portrait is. But I definitely want to do a Mary the First soon. As you mentioned, Margaret Pohl. Margaret Beaufort is always on my list. She's always on my mind. Margaret of Anjou was also so interesting. Oh. I mean, truly main character of the Wars of the Roses. I just, totally. yeah, I wish we had portraits of her. We don't have any. Yeah, it's so frustrating because she is unbelievably fascinating figure. And so we have we have nothing to go on, really. You know, a couple of descriptions, a, a ver- again, a, a very dodgy sketch, but that's about it. And it's so, pr- we have no idea what Anne Neville looked like either. You know, these women who were so crucial to the Wars of the Roses. It is only really Elizabeth Woodville and Margaret Beaufort that we have any sense of what they might have looked like. Yeah. Uh, and it's yeah, it's just, it sucks, but it it is, you know, there are always things being discovered, but um, Margaret of Anjou is definitely one that I, I wish we could see what she did li- really look like. Me too. And I, some of these descriptions that you get of people too, I haven't done any research on Margaret of Anjou's um, appearance to see if there's any descriptions of her, but they're there always aren't. so, you know, you just <laughs> wish that, um, you yeah. wish that someone would just be a little more detailed about their descriptions. They'll be like, she had a lovely countenance or something. And you're like, what does that mean though? What color were yeah. her eyes? What color was her hair? Tell me about her nose, you know, like tell me the details, please. But they're always so general and broad i wish they were a little yeah more detailed. she had a right good smiling countenance and you think what the fuck yeah. does that mean? <laughs> a cheery countenance you're like all right <laughs> whatever <laughs> they're like she was the most pleasing woman in britain i'm like but what does that mean though explain that yeah i mean short of telling me she's got two eyes a nose and a mouth they are not really <laughs> getting much more from that well i think that's one of the things about Anne Boleyn that's so fascinating as well is that these portraits and then the the scant records of what sh- what people said about her I mean, I think it's also a lot of that has 
with Anne Boleyn, there's always so much scandal and and people have that whole six fingers and the the large yeah. wen on her chin and all that sort of stuff. And it's so you really she kind have of to got sort the Richard the Third treatment. We think about yeah. that, like the the kind of what's the middle ground between what was said and the reality of the situation. Or you know, we know a lot of descriptions about Anne came from people that didn't really see her. They caught a glimpse of her, or they were biased sources that didn't you know approve of her. Didn't um, exactly, yeah, exactly. Her and without so. yeah, and without wanting to be sort of reductive. The you know the irony is that she was followed by Jane Seymour, who I think we can agree from her portraits was very plain, yeah. you know, an incredibly plain-looking woman who just happened to not piss off the king and give him a son. It's it's just that frustration, yeah. isn't it? That you know, but who knows? Who knows? So finally, if I may ask, of all of the people that you've recreated, do you have a, a personal fave? I don't know that I just have one. I think I'll list a few, but my favorites are just the ones that I get lost in the process with like where I've spent four hours and I've forgotten to go to the bathroom or eat anything you know and I'm like shaking from low blood sugar but I'm just having the best time making the recreations and I think some of those are the ones that come together moderately easily there's some I will really struggle with like Elizabeth Woodville or certain figures that man I just feel like I could spend hours and hours and they're just not coming together the way that I want them Mm. to but the ones that I love that did come together pretty quickly were Anne of Cleves. Um, I just loved that one I did from her front-facing Holbein portrait. Loved that one. I suppose I that's, that portrait of Anne of Cleves as well, though, for a, for someone like what you do, that portrait of Anne of Cleves is a gift because it is facing yes. forward. You know, it's... Yes, it doesn't have that three-quarters eye problem. It no. looks really realistic. I mean, recreating Holbein is easy because of how good he was. Um, so yes, that one was just easy and great. I loved working on that one. I did one of Pocahontas that I loved. Um, I don't know if you've seen that one, but there's yeah. the only contemporary image we have of Pocahontas is a engraving um, from when she went to England. And she's only 18 or 19 in the image, but she looks old because wood cutting and wood engraving is not a very fine sort of portrait medium. Um, <laughs> so I really liked that one because I could get her features out and kind of see what a real lifelike version of that woodcut would look like. And it's like, you can see her strong cheeks that she's got. She's got like a really chiseled face. She's got, she had like amazing bone structure and it's just really cool to kind of flesh out. I love going from portrait that you can't really see the life to, to like fully fleshed out with light and shadow and um, more realistic looking. I love it when I can go from, something that doesn't look lifelike to something that looks lifelike. Those are always my favorite ones. So I think that's Pocahontas, um, Anacles, Richard III. I liked that one. Cleopatra VII. Um, and then, of course, Anne Boleyn is a favorite. I will do 80 recreations of Anne Boleyn and never get tired of it. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank you so, so much for coming on to the show. I think people are going to be really fascinated by this discussion. Thank you so much for um, having me. Oh, you're very welcome. So where can people find you across social media? Unless they, I mean, they'd have to be mad if they're not already following you, but just in case, where can people find you? Yes. So on Instagram, you can find me at royalty underscore now underscore. I apologize that royalty now, all one word was already taken. Um, You can find us on YouTube at royalty now studios and at royalty now studios.com. Brilliant. Well, thank you again for, for joining the, the chat. And have a wonderful Christmas 
you and hubby and the the, the doggies Thank and you so much. and we'll uh, we'll speak soon okay sounds great thank you and so that brings me to the end of this week's episode of the Tudor Chess podcast. Thank you so much for listening and a big thank you to Becca Segovia. I'm going to be taking a break over the next couple of weeks to fully relax and enjoy the festive period, but I will be back in the new year with new guests, new topics and much more content from the Tudor Chest. To everyone listening, thank you for your ongoing support for the Tudor Chest. Have a wonderful Christmas and new year and speak to you in 2024.